The scripture reading today is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm glad you're here. If at any time while we are reviewing the text, you can't hear me, just do me the favor and say louder, okay? Because as I get uh, into the text and we're talking about the things here, a lot of exciting things to talk about, I may forget where I'm at and drop my voice down here. And so I just need your help. Will you help me? Okay. We are beginning a new series this fall to start the beginning of our home meetings. We're going to study the book of Philippians together. And we're going to do that because the Philippians exudes joy. Joy that our foundational identity, who we are, is in Christ. And that that identity brings a tremendous unity with all kinds of practical implications. And so we're going to look at that as we're going to uh, follow along with the passage in our home meetings. We're going to preach on this passage here, 1 through 5, chapter 1, 1 through 5 today. And in the home meetings this week, we're going to discuss it further. And there's a, there's a guy that the leaders are prepared to go through as well. And so it should bring a great exploration of the unity that we have together in the Lord and in the gospel as we move along. Today... I want to start with a story that Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was a minister at 10th Presbyterian for many years, and he told about an opium addict in China. And the opium addict basically left all his responsibilities behind, was just about smoking opium. And his life had fallen apart, and the weeds had grown up around his poppy plants in the garden, and he spent all of his time indoors, and he had failed his family, and he failed other people. And at one point, a missionary came and talked to him about the hope that we have in Jesus. I was reading about opium today, and you know, there are great quantities of morphine and other pain-killing drugs within it, and so it deadens us. It deadens us when we, when we despair. And we lack hope. And yet this missionary told this man about a tremendous hope in Jesus. Now, prior to that, the man was sorry for the consequences of his, of his brokenness. And he would say, you know, I'll, I'll stop. And he wouldn't. And no one in the, in the community believed him when he said, I'll stop anymore. But this man introduced him to Jesus. He met Jesus personally. He had an encounter. He had a saving encounter with the risen Lord. And you know what he did? He dug up the poppies from his garden. He tended to his yard. He came out. He saw how he could help his neighbors. It wasn't just saying that he had changed. They saw the evidence of it in practical ways, in ways that made differences. And so we're going to be talking about today how the gospel transforms us in practical ways in our relationships, where it matters most. We encounter one another and other people every day. 
and the gospel makes a difference. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Well, I'd like to talk with you about how it changes our, your relationship to God. And we'll spend the most time there, frankly, because there's so much. It's surprising in that little section how much there is on how your relationship with God has changed. Well, we're going to talk about how it changes your relationship with God, how it changes your relationship to the church. Hopefully we'll be challenged as we look at the way Paul and the Philippians' relationship was changed to the church, to the way that they were together, that our relationship to Liberty Fairmount and to the other good churches in the city will be changed as well. And we'll look at also then finally how it changes your relationship to our city, Philadelphia. It changes things. So let's look together. Your relationship with God has changed in the gospel. Why? Christians are made holy by the gospel. You know the word saints here is the same word for holy. That's what it means. Whose is this? Oh, for me? Thank you. This is great. I was worried about this. <laughs> here it is. Thank you. Holy is the Bible's special word for describing God. The most intimate Bible word for his divine nature. What it means is this. Some of you may have heard that holy means set apart, right? And that gets at the meaning. It's one word that gets at the meaning. It's more like this. It means that you belong to a different order of things. That you're living in a different sphere. Holy means that you belong to a different order of things and living in a different sphere. The holiness of the Lord is not only something true then of his whole nature, something unique in its kind, but it's also that he is a moral holiness. It's the moral perfection of his whole being. All of that is wrapped up in holiness. When Isaiah meets the Lord for the first time, and he has a vision of the Lord, in the Lord's presence are his servants crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We sang about that this morning. Now, what I want you to see here, to all the saints gathered in Philippi, to all the saints gathered here, saints being holy, being belonging to a different order of things, living in a different sphere, Paul uses that word holy and the idea that comes along with it to describe the Christian. He uses it to describe you if you're in Christ. It's a description of what Christians are by grace and in the sight of God. Grace has made Christians partakers of divine nature, conferring on them the greatest honors. And that is that the holy God should give Christians his title and his character and call them holy. So now the Christian's position as a saint, holy, involves a reorientation away from self and towards Christ. And so we're going to look at one of Paul's phrases that he loves to use in all of his letters, very much so, to all the saints in Christ. We're going to look at that word. We're going to look at of Christ and from Christ. They're all in this passage. Let's look at in Christ first. In Christ is a comprehensive description of every Christian. You need to know that. We're holy in Christ. We're belonging to a different order of things or living in a different sphere in Christ. 
Now, what are some of the aspects of being in Christ? In Christ, salvation comes to us. How does it come? God's call. Later on, when we cover chapter 3, verse 14, the call of God in Christ Jesus is not an invitation awaiting our response, but an authoritative summons. It's, the, it's God's royal edict of conscription. It brings us into living relationship with the Lord Jesus. You can choose to ignore, as we've said in the past, an invitation someplace. But this is a call that you can't refuse. It's a call into the living presence of the Lord. And it brings us in. It's not an invitation awaiting our response. It brings us into his presence. Now, God uses the gift of faith. We'll learn later in chapter 1, verse 29. He uses a gift of faith as the means to make his call effective in our lives. It enables us to possess something which we are privileged to call our own salvation. But the call itself is issued in Christ Jesus because all of God's saving purposes are centered in Christ and worked out by him. What he does, not who you are, not what you do. So, but we're also in Christ. We're secure. We have everything we need. The peace of God. It's like the peace of God is a special forces unit. Patrolling our hearts and our God's glorious riches are laid open to us to meet our every need. What are some examples of his riches open to us, meeting our needs? Well, one of the things we'll learn in verse 8 when we get to it is that we become new people with new feelings. We become new people with new feelings. Paul says, I yearn for all of you with what? With the affection of Christ. So we have new feelings, but in Christ we also have a new mind or way of looking at things. When we get to chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, I have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. A new way of looking at things. We've got new feelings, new way of looking at things. But we also have new encouragements and incentives to live as Christians should. Paul calls on these for us. He says later in chapter 2, verse 1, we have encouragement in Christ. We have comfort from love. We have participation in the Spirit, affection, and sympathy. Those are the markers of personal relationship with the Lord. And in Christ, we have new abilities to bring those incentives to fruition. In chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But we also have a way in Christ to see his hand and sovereign ordering of all of our affairs, especially when we suffer. Paul writes that his imprisonment in verse 13 of the first chapter was for Christ. He's able to look at that, look at his suffering as being for Christ. He's able to see the Lord's sovereign hand in a different way. To be in Christ is to possess what is often spoke of as full salvation. Full salvation. Everything necessary is what we have now. Everything necessary to our past, to our present, to our future, and eternal welfare has been secured for us by the action of God in Christ and is stored up for Christ, stored up for us in Christ to share, to enjoy. But it's not only the benefits and blessings that are in Christ, we are in Him. We are in Him ourselves. It's not just the objective truth about the gospel that we talk about when we say we're in Christ. We actually have a loving, warm, 
experience personal reality of the living God. So that's in Christ, but we also have of Christ. Says Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus. A servant of Jesus means that we're responsive in our obedience. That our obedience service flows out of the objective facts, of the objective truths that are true of us in Christ through his gracious salvation to us. You are now for the first time free. Free. Liberty. Free from the penalty of bondage and degradation of sin. You are now truly human. Why? Because for Christ is in him true humanity. Christ is true humanity. And those who are in him possess a human nature matching their creator's intention. When Paul talks later in, in another letter, when he talks in another letter about change, like the answer change, he says this, that you're to put on the new self created after what? The likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's the objective fact that you are holy, belonging to a different order of things and living in a different sphere, and that gives rise to your obedience. Now, a lot of you, and a lot of, well, and I have too, have lived in a way where we think that our obedience makes us holy. It's our obedience. If we can just live good Christian lives, if we can just live in a way that will earn God's favor, that will please Him, then we'll be holy. And that's upside down. Here, it's because you're made holy that your obedience flows that your obedience comes. We have great privileges as we come to God through Christ. But they're not to be equated, those privileges, with comfy clothes in front of the TV on Saturday morning where you're just chilling. Those are not the, that's not the equation that needs to go on. What needs to happen is that you need to see that the privileges we have in Christ are like a staff. And shoes meant for a pilgrimage, something to protect you with. Or it's like armor for battle, so that we can take the hits of warfare. Or sometimes it's like a plow for a field. But there's an active response and obedience that comes from the privileges we've been given. Our response comes from the facts of our salvation. So we have in and of Christ, but we also have from, from Christ. Listen, it's no easy task to live like this. If you went out right now and you stopped talking right here, and you just tried to live in Christ, and you just tried to live of Christ, you might last for a little while, but you're going to feel the pressure of that. You're going to feel the pressure of that, and you're going to see yourself fail, and then you're going to ask yourself, well, what, how then should I live? Where do I get the strength for this? Well, he tells us. Paul answers by pointing to the giver of the gift. Grace and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. The attitude of Paul towards Christ is not merely the attitude of a man to a man or a student to a professor. It's the attitude of human being towards God. In the phrase, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the preposition from governs both names. It governs both names and has the effect of hyphenating those names, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, into one single source of blessing. So that all the divine greatness of God and the Lord, all the divine love and saving effectiveness 
of the Father and Jesus Christ come together in a divine unanimity to pour out upon the saints whatever they need, whatever we need for their days on earth. And all that they need is summed up in the gift, which is specified grace and peace. If you get an email from me, you'll see that I sign it. In all grace and peace. Because there it is. It's the crux of our salvation. We have an embarrassment of riches. We have a fullness of blessing in his grace and peace. What is grace? It is God being gracious, adopting us, adopting an attitude of all-sufficient favor towards our helplessness and meritlessness as sinners and acting in line with his grace. It comes, it's God coming to us in free, unprovoked love to give us the opposite of what we deserve. I've talked to you, some of you about the book To End All Wars and the way that the prisoners were treated in this prison camp in World War II was deplorable. So much so that when the, when the Allied forces came in and liberated the camp, they were ready to shoot the enemy soldiers on sight for the way that they had treated the prisoners. They had neglected every convention that was agreed upon. And you know that some of the prisoners of that camp came to know the Lord during their time there in the suffering that they faced. And you know that some of them threw themselves down in front of the Allied soldiers' feet, begging for the lives of those who didn't deserve it. Because they had learned in their imprisonment God's love for them when they were unlovely. And so they were able to love those who had been unlovely towards them. So grace. But peace is also there. It's not just grace, it's peace. Peace is not less than peace with God, but it means much more. In the Old Testament, peace is shalom. And that combines the idea of harmony and outward peace with God and human beings with completeness or fulfillment and inward peace in those who remain whole. In those who are made whole. Similarly, in the New Testament, peace is Godward. In Romans 5, 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also not just Godward, it's inward. Paul writes later, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. But it is also harmony in Christian relationships. The harmony is something in our relationships with one another that we possess. Paul talks about it as being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And it's also something that we pursue. We're to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who are called from the Lord, calling the Lord from a pure heart. Peace is both our experience and our strength in hard times as well. One other thing Paul writes later in chapter 4 is that the peace, he prays, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So it's grace and peace. It sums up in one word the all-sufficient blessings which God gives to his saints and which his presence enables them to experience. So the gospel changes your relationship with God. But your gospel also changes your relationship to the church. Why? Follow with me here. The Bible says, what the Bible says about ministry flows out of what the Bible says about the church. But what the Bible says about ministry flows out what the Bible says about the needs of God's people. It's not the other way around. What the Bible says about the needs of God's people does not flow out of what the Bible says about ministry. 
ministry is based on the needs and flows out of the needs of those the Lord loves. And this is important because what we're going to see here is a shift in redemptive history into your identity and what this means to you, particularly around priesthood. In Exodus 19, 6, there's a place that expresses the Lord's ideal for the church. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. But what happened was the people of Israel as a whole proved unworthy to be his kingdom of priests and was directed to delegate its priestly functions to just one of the tribes, not all twelve, just one. So in the Old Testament, ministry arose out of the need and state of God's people. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter teaches this, that believers are built into a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, and that you who believe are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, the existence... Inactivity of such ministries arise out of the needs of the church, and they can be exercised only in ways that are suited to what the needs of the church are. What does that mean? Let's look further. In the New Testament, it never speaks of any ministry as mediating between God and the church. The things that we do don't mediate between you and God. The Old Testament required a mediating priesthood. But when the New Testament uses the word priest, it always refers to either Jesus, that he's our great high priest, or to all believers, that he's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Priest never refers to an individual Christian or Christian minister. Your relationship to the church has changed. Why? Because it's, if it's true that we have priestly access to God because of the finished work of Christ, then the priestly tribe is unnecessary and impossible. It's ruled out by the nature of what the people of God is. It's ruled out. Some of you who have been around for a while notice that we'll call those who help us through our worship Levites. Levites. That was the tribe that was singled out as the priests. We call those who help us Levites, not because a priestly tribe is needed, but because it reminds us that we are all priests because of the finished work of Jesus. So, how does this look then? Within the church, the Lord raises up special ministries to enable the church to exercise its fully God-intended functions. We spent time on a leadership retreat just this past weekend. And we talked about what God is calling us. And we talked about the idea that we need to learn how to love God and love people and love our city. He's calling us to do those things, that we value those things. But we need to learn to do each of those things in our ministries. Those those ministries that we do are to enable the church to exercise its full God-intended functions. Our ministries, what we do, how we function together are part of the church's equipment. It's not a part of the essence. It flows out of the essence of who we are. Within the local church, on these pages, in Philippians, there was fellowship. You notice that Paul says all the saints, together with all the saints. There was fellowship and leadership. The overseers or the elders and deacons were there. The leadership, however, was not an imposition upon the fellowship, but an extension of it. 
the elders, the deacons, the people, the Christians there, were all in fellowship together. It says later, partnership in the gospel. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel. I give you thanks to the Lord God with joy because the elders, the deacons, and the members of the church in Philippi were partnering in the gospel with him. So it changes your relationship with God. It changes your relationship with the church. We have partnership in the gospel now. But it changes your relationship with the city. Why? Verse 1. Where are the Christians? Where are the saints? Where are the holy ones? They're in Philippi. They're in the city. And Christians live in two different orders of reality at the same time. One, we belong to Christ. As Paul will later say in our book here, we, our citizenship is in heaven, not here on earth. But yet for the moment, we live in an environment that has a need of the gospel. We live at Philippi or London or Atlanta or Philadelphia. Here in our city, we are called to live as alien residents. Our emphasis... Or if you're from different places, our accents, if you will. Our emphasis and lifestyle make others say, hmm, now where do you belong? You're not like the other people from around here. You're acting differently. You're living life in a different way. Our church, our city needs to see that in the church, Christ has solved the problems of isolation and alienation and division in his people, those things which curse and blight our city's own life. In isolation, we, isolation has been solved. Jesus has solved the problem of isolation for us. Because in Christ, you're not left alone. You remember earlier in the year, we looked at the fact that because of what Christ has done, Jesus can say to us, I will never, ever, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. Your first, Jesus was first born among many brothers and sisters. We're not isolated anymore. We have relationship with God the Father. We have relationship with one another. Our city needs to see those things flourishing. Also, Jesus has solved the problem of alienation. You're not alienated from God. You're not alienated from God in Jesus. But you're brought into relationship with him. We're told Paul, by Paul later that in you, who were once was alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him. But he's also solved the problem of division. You're no longer divided, but you're given the unity, the very unity of the Trinity. The life of the Trinity. Jesus prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is what our city is waiting for today. As it did in Philippi in Paul's days, Jesus has solved the deepest problems of our city with the good news of his work on our behalf. The city waits for the sight of a people who have solved its problem through the reality of being in Christ, of him, from him. Not isolated, but numbered among the many sons and daughters. Not alienated, but a member of the household of God, a royal priesthood. Not divided, but united in the work of Christ on their behalf. A people whose lifestyle sets forth the beauty of God's very character with fresh loveliness as the holy likeness of Jesus is seen in them. 
You know, all of our Liberty Network churches, as we work together, we ha- we've said, because of this, that we are about... We are about seeking to live and speak and serve as the very presence of Jesus in our neighborhoods. At Fairmount, we are looking at that with fresh eyes this ministry year and looking at where we can learn and grow in ministries of loving God. We're going to be paying special emphasis on and attention to knowing, praying, meditating on, and applying the Bible. We're going to spend special emphasis when we love people to take sin seriously in our own lives together and being willing to hear what others have to say about us and where we fail. When we get locked and trapped in our sinfulness, it's hard for us to see. We desperately need others that we trust who are willing to point it out to us, willing to know us in such a way that they'll point it out to us and share it. We need to be willing to open ourselves to that. And in loving our city, we want to be about sharing the great message of the good news that we have in Jesus, among so many other things that we discussed. Now, again, how is this all possible? It's possible because Jesus solved your deepest problems. He was isolated on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you would never be left alone. He was alienated. He was cast away outside of the city so that you could call his brother and sister a son or daughter of God. He experienced division. The father turned his face away so that you could experience unity, the unity that he prayed for, that you and I might be one just as he and the father are one. So in summary, first we covered how the gospel changes your relationship to God. The key point is that your position as a saint involves a reorientation, a reorientation away from self and towards Christ. Second, we covered how the gospel changes your relationship to the church. The key point is that the church's fellowship and leadership both flow out of a partnership in the gospel shaped by the needs of the church, not the other way around. And third, we covered how the gospel changes your relationship to the city. The key point is that our city needs to see that in the church, that Christ has solved the problems of isolation and alienation and division, which curse and blight our own city's life. Friends, because of the beauty of personal relationship with Jesus through all he has accomplished on your behalf, because that overwhelms you and causes your thankful, joyful obedience to flow from you out into every relationship you have with God and with others in the city, our city will change. Our relationships with one another will change. Our relationship with God changes. I want you to experience the warmth and personal reality of the fullness of your salvation. Full salvation belongs to us as a matter of objective fact. But it's only through your union with our living Savior that we experience its warmth and personal reality. You don't always experience warmth and personal reality in your relationship with God. But you shouldn't go too long without experiencing that. If so, you need to ask yourself if you've come into a relationship with God. Because it's not a living relationship with objective fact, although that's important to our salvation. It's a living relationship to the living God that you have, that Jesus brings us. I also want you to look for needs within the church, which will define our ministry together. Look around you as you get to know one another. What are our needs? Don't assume that somebody, because of our numbers, is taking care of it. Step up and understand where God would want you to be used to be the church, to extend his love outward. 
And then we need to live a, line, live a life that's in line with the truth of the gospel. We need to show our city how Christ has solved the problems of isolation by show, showing them how we're not isolated, of alienation, by showing them how we're not alienated, of division, showing that we're no longer divided, but we're united in what Christ has done for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, because of the work of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, we come to you now and have a different relationship with you. We're in you, we're of you, and we're from you. And we have a different relationship to one another. We're in partnership in the gospel together. There's a priesthood of all believers now because of our great high priest. And we have a different relationship with our city that our relationship with you changed, our relationship with one another changed, should give the hope that you've prepared for those who need to know you, who need to draw near to you. Would you be with us as a church as we begin this ministry year? Flourish in our midst through your Holy Spirit. Empower us. Clarify, clarify for us. And give us unity in the ministry that you would have us be about. We pray this thankfully in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.